Well, we continue to worship our God now in the reading of his word, and now the preaching of it as well. So let's turn back to 1 Samuel. This morning, 1 Samuel chapter 23. Chapter 23, this week we're back from our detour. Remember, we took a little bit of a detour last week away from the book of 1 Samuel. We turned a few pages away to the book of Psalms. Although, remember, it was a detour last week, but it wasn't a departure. It wasn't disconnected. We turned to the Psalms because you can go to that book And you can find what David himself was writing. You can find the poems and the prayers that David was writing while he was personally experiencing the history that's recorded for us in 1 and 2 Samuel. It's one of the beauties of the Bible that God has put all of that in it. It's one of the glories of God himself, as I said last week, that he is the God both of sweeping history and personal story, personal expression, and it shows, it shows in the book that he's given us called the Bible. And last week we saw that, remember, by focusing on Psalm 52, that's a psalm that David wrote around the time that Doeg the Edomite betrayed him to Saul, and that had disastrous consequences. So we learned from the content of that psalm Psalm 52, that whatever the the depths may be where the Lord takes you, you can still flourish there. Whatever the circumstances may be in which you find yourself, those circumstances don't rule out the prospect of your growing in the Lord. And we also learn from the canonicity of that psalm. In other words, the fact that it's included in the Bible in the first place. We learned about the goodness, the value of the expression of our own spiritual experience. For God to put those poems in his word, it's his way of saying, it's a good thing for my people to find ways to express themselves as David did. Puts a divine seal of approval on it. So that was last week. That was our detour over into Psalm 52. This week we're back to 1 Samuel, and sure enough, we're back to David in danger And on the run. That's where we left him. And we've seen this before and we'll see it again. David in danger and on the run. What's unique about this particular chapter that we've got before us today? And we're going to focus on this in a little bit. What's unique about this chapter is that David finds himself in danger. And he's still got to keep running. At a time when he might have thought that he'd get some relief. When he might have thought that his actions to do good for other people would result in some relief, some refuge, some safety, finally for himself and for his men. But it wasn't to be. And maybe you found that to be true in your own experience. It's one thing to be tested by something hard that you're going through. Maybe it's physical illness. Maybe it's a broken heart. 
Maybe it's uncertainty about the future. Maybe it is some other person who seems to have it in for you for some reason. You may not even know what the reason is. Whatever it might be, it's one thing to be tested by some difficulty that you have to endure. But then it gets even harder when you think you've reached some place of potential relief, refuge, breakthrough, only to find that those hopes are dashed. Especially when you've been trying to honor the Lord and do the right thing, and you thought that might result in a turning point, but then it didn't. So it feels like you've been been running a marathon, and you turn that last corner And you have it in your head, and you've had it in your head for a while, that when you turn that corner, the finish line's going to be in sight, only to find that you miscounted. And it's not the last corner. And the finish line is nowhere in sight. And now you don't even know how far you've got to go. That's even harder. How do you find the strength then? Or it feels like you've been stumbling through a parched Desert, and then off in the distance you see an oasis only to find as you get closer that it was just a mirage all along. That's even harder. How do you keep going then? Well, there's something like that here in 1 Samuel 23. Because it's not just that David's still in danger and on the run. He is, and that's bad enough. But here in chapter 23, we add this. He and his men rescue a whole city from the Philistines. They saved them. And it's a city that had real potential to become a place of refuge and safety for them. And what do they get for it? Turns out the people of that city, the city that they've just saved, the people of that city are prepared to hand him over to Saul. So that he's got to flee again and keep running. Just when you might have thought that things had taken a slight turn, it wasn't to be. And he's got to keep running. That's even harder. And isn't that a very good time for a very good friend to come and meet you again and strengthen your hand in God? A friend like Jonathan. And it's all here in 1 Samuel 23. So let me pray for us, and then we'll see what's here. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you again for your word. For 1 Samuel, for 1 Samuel 23. And we pray that you would open our eyes now to behold wonders here, to behold your truth here. We say, speak, Lord. Or your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Samuel 23. You know I like to point out a little bit of Bible geography now and then. The city of Keilah was located in the territory of Judah. And remember, the territory of Judah was the southernmost of the twelve tribes. So the city of Keilah is located down in the territory of Judah. And so it wasn't too far away from the territory of the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines were situated on the map down to the west of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. 
So that's where we find ourselves on the map here in chapter 23. Listen now, beginning at verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floor. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, let's pause there. Remember, Abiathar is the one who escaped that grim episode a few chapters back when the priestly city of Nob was put to the sword. Abiathar escaped, came to David. And we're told here he had come down with an ephod in his hand. An ephod was a priestly garment of some sort. And because it was associated with the priesthood, it was regularly involved in situations in which you would seek to know the will of the Lord in some way. There wasn't anything necessarily idolatrous or superstitious about that. The Lord regularly honored that as a way of honoring the priesthood that he had established, and he honors it here because David wants to know the will of the Lord in this matter. So look at verse 7. It was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So that tells us a little bit about this city that there is some potential, this is a fortified city, some potential here, it would seem, to be a place of refuge for David and his men. But Saul sees it differently from his vantage point. It's a place where he thinks David has trapped himself. Saul sees this as an opportunity to seize. Verse 8, Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day 
but God did not give him into his hand. The the city of Ziph and the, the territory, the wilderness around it, was located even further south in the territory of Judah. So David has gone even further south on the map now. Now verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh. And Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. There's something almost nauseating about the way that Saul has the nerve to invoke God's name in the course of what he's doing here. This man is already so far gone, so far away from God, that he can actually invoke the name of God, though he's turned so far away from him. Then he keeps going. Look at verse 22. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides. And come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. So Saul is determined. He's going to hunt David down. Verse 24, and they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon and the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So that's what we've got here in chapter 23. That's what unfolds. And then the question becomes, as it has been our question Sunday after Sunday, what do we take from this? We've seen what unfolds here in this chapter. What lessons can we glean from it and take with us? Well, let me say, first of all, there there are several themes that are on display in this one chapter in 1 Samuel that we've seen before. 
As I've said before, there are these running themes, there are these recurring patterns in the book. We don't need to dive too deeply into them again here this morning because we've seen them before, but it's still worth noticing them by the way because it helps us to to make some connections as we make our way through the book. So think of this as the reminder section of the sermon. Here, Here are some reminders in chapter 23. For example, one of those running themes is the Lord protects his anointed one. And here that means the Lord protects David. We've seen that before. Here it is again. And just like before, even though we know the outcome, we're still on the edges of our seats because it's a close call again. By the end of the chapter, it's a game of race and hunt and hide around the same mountain. That's how close this close call is. David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David. And just like before, God has all of these different ways that he's able to protect his anointed one when he wants to. He preserves David's life here. There's no way Saul's going to succeed. In this case, God even uses the Philistines of all people. To distract Saul so that he doesn't succeed in capturing David. God has his ways. Verse 14 sums it up. Saul sought David every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So there's that running theme that we've seen before. Here's a second one. The truth that God knows everything. That our God knows absolutely everything. We've seen that before, and here it is again. And you might remember, I gave us a preview of this episode in chapter 23 several weeks ago. It was back when we were talking about the fact that Saul might have had an enduring kingly line after him, but he blew it. Our theme that Sunday was what might have been. And that illustrated an important truth about God, which is God knows everything, including what might have been, what would have come to pass if certain actions had been taken that were not taken. God knows everything, including that. Potential storylines that were not realized. Potential outcomes that didn't come out. And sometimes in Scripture, God says so. He says What might have been, whether it's a moment of judgment and blessing withdrawn, or it's a moment of revelation to guide a faithful servant. As our confession of faith puts it, quote, God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, end quote. And sure enough, that statement in our confession of faith, when you look up the proof texts, 1 Samuel 23 is one of them. What happens here? Because what happens in this chapter is David asks God the question, are these people going to hand me over? And God gives the answer, yes, they are. And so David and his men get out of there so that that doesn't happen. But it would have happened. It would have been, and God knew it, and God said so, so that David knew it. God knows everything, including what might have been, whether it's blessings that might have been or disasters. 
So there's that running theme. Here's a third, third reminder. The theme of the beautiful bond and friendship between Jonathan and David. We've seen that before. Here it is again. And this too, what we've got here in our chapter. I gave us a preview of this a few weeks back. This wonderful moment when Jonathan comes to David in chapter 23. And that beautiful phrase that captures the good friend that he was. And the blessing that Jonathan was to him when he came to him. In verse 16 where it says, Jonathan rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. They were closely knit like that. Closely knit by affection. Closely knit by promises. And then here's one more I'll point out. One more reminder. One more of these running themes. And this is the one that we noticed just last Sunday when we took our detour. And it's the interplay between what David goes through in 1 Samuel and what he writes about it in the Psalms. Because sure enough, there's another Psalm in which David writes about what he goes through in this chapter. And it's Psalm 54. You don't need to turn there if you don't want, but let me, let me, let me read it for us. Because Psalm 54, it's another one of those Psalms that has a heading to it that ties it into some history that unfolds. Here's the heading of Psalm 54. It says this, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? That's the heading of Psalm 54, and that points us right to our chapter this morning in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 23. When David is betrayed by these folks. So what does he write about that? David, this future king in danger and on the run. Who's now betrayed. What does David the poet have to say about that? Listen to Psalm 54. Oh God, save me by your name. And vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. You see, there in Psalm 54, David is is interpreting for us what unfolds in 1 Samuel. He's shedding ominous light on what he's going through. But then in the psalm, David keeps going. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 54. That's David in poetry telling us what the episode with the Ziphites felt like. And how he cried out to God. 
And how he trusted in God and how he gave thanks to God for preserving his life. You know, whenever you're reading history, whether it's history in the Bible or outside of the Bible, there's always the the possibility, the danger that you'll, you'll lapse into thinking about historical figures as if they were mere cardboard cutouts. Little cardboard pieces moved around on the board. And how wonderful that God has given us a Bible like this with with a poem like Psalm 54 that shows us that David, going through what he goes through in 1 Samuel 23, was flesh and blood. He was body and soul. He felt and felt deeply and was willing to express it. 1 Samuel 23, well, 1 and 2 Samuel, Bible history can feel like just the facts at times. And then we turn a few pages to Psalm 54. And we get to listen to what it felt like. And it's such an encouragement because it's what it felt like for a man who trusted in God the way we do, the way we want to. So all that to say, we've got some running themes here, recurring patterns those reminders. And what I want to say is those reminders, these themes that we've seen before and that we'll probably see again, they are spiritually valuable in their own way. And I say that because the reminders, the repetitions, they have the effect of strengthening our own hands in God in the present. David could look back on his own past experience, just as we can look back on our own. And we can say, I've seen this before. This, this feels familiar. I've seen this before in my own life. I've seen that God is my protector. And I've learned before that, that God knows everything. And I've tasted before that good friendship is a good gift. And I've experienced it before that it's a blessing to pour out my soul and to express what I'm going through. It's spiritually valuable for us to notice that we've seen these things before. Our God, in giving us the book that he's given us, including the history that he's given us, our God is a loving Father who has a loving way of saying to us, now remember, we've been over this before. And and there's nothing exasperated or resentful in the way that he says it. Our God is a father who says, now remember, my children, we've been over this before. And there's something so wise and loving and persevering in the way that he says it. So we ought to bless him for the loving reminders and repetitions that he's given us. So we can notice those running themes, recurring patterns, reminders. But as I said when we got started this morning, when we turn to this chapter in particular, we can add something particular to all of that. Something that we can focus on today with 1 Samuel 23. And it's this truth, it's this lesson Because of what unfolds here, the truth is, ultimately, we've got to look to the Lord to be our reward.
So no alliteration this week, but you get some rhyme instead. How about that? You don't get that often. We've got to look to the Lord to be our reward for the good that we do in his name. That's a truth that we can glean from this chapter. And how do we get that here? How is it that this chapter leads us to that conclusion? Well, think about it. David saved this city. Saved the city of Keilah. David and his men rescued these people from the Philistines. And not only that, but they did so at real peril to themselves, humanly speaking. They saved this city. And what does he get for it? What's his reward? They're going to hand him over to Saul. And when they do that, Saul's going to kill him. David saved this city... And that's what he gets for it. That's the outcome. Now, to be fair here, and we want to be fair and charitable and patient readers of history, we need to say this about the city of Keilah and the people there. We need to say it's not necessarily the case that the people of that city knew everything that you and I know about Saul and David and about this whole unfolding storyline. It's not like the people of Keilah certainly had a word from the Lord in which the Lord said, David is mine and Saul is my enemy and you shall not hand David over to him. Who knows exactly what these people knew at the time? No doubt this may have been a perplexing and muddied situation for them at the time, no doubt it may have been quite fearful, especially if they've heard about Saul massacring the whole city of Nob. The population of the city Keilah, it was probably, like any city, it was probably a spiritual mix. There probably were some people in that city who were like the people in the other place that David described in that psalm we heard a little bit ago, where he says, ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. So yeah, there may have been some of that in Keilah. But here's the point. We don't have to come to any conclusions about the hearts of these people. We're simply observing the circumstances themselves. That's all we need. We're simply noting the facts of the story. And the facts are... David saved this city at great peril, and because it was a fortified city, it could have been a really good stronghold for him, and he and his men deserved that much at least. We can say that, and instead, the outcome is they're going to be handed over, and no doubt Saul's going to kill all of them when that happens, and so they've got to keep running. Turns out that oasis is a mirage after all. But that does not mean that David was in the wrong for doing what he did, leading his men to save that city. There was no cause for David to second-guess that decision because that was clearly the will of the Lord that they saved that city. The Lord made it clear. And so it was clearly obedience on David's part that he followed through. And therefore, we have to say, it was honorable in the sight of God. Even if David and his men 
didn't end up receiving all of the honor and gratitude that they might have gotten from the people that they saved, still it was honorable in the sight of God, and therefore it wasn't wrong. It wasn't a waste of of time and energy. And that's why I say that this is a reminder for us here in this chapter that ultimately we've got to look to the Lord to be our reward. Whatever the earthly outcomes may happen to be as a result of the good that we do in His name, and those outcomes may be sweet, they may be bitter, they may be fitting, they may be disappointing. We look to the Lord to be our reward. And we can unpack that a little bit. That truth, we look to the Lord to be our reward, that is true in these three senses for the Christian believer. First of all, it's true in the sense that the Lord himself, I mean just knowing him, that is our greatest reward. Knowing God is our pearl of greatest price. And Christian, no one can take that away from you. Even if other people find a way to dishonor something honorable that you've done, or they they simply fail to pay the honor that's due. Christian, no one can take that away from you, that you know God and that you're known by Him. The Lord Himself is our greatest reward. And it's not really a reward for anything that we've done. It's the Lord rewarding His own grace. It's a peculiar kind of reward. It's like what we saw not too long ago in Psalm 73, when Asaph, the psalmist, bears his soul, and he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, my portion forever. So there's that, first of all. Second of all, This truth is also true in the sense that even now, in this life, the Lord smiles upon the good that we do in His name. Our good works. Even a cup of water that we give in His name doesn't escape His notice. He loves it. And we can rest in the knowledge that He actually takes pleasure in the good things that we do. That's why Paul can say to the Colossians that he prays for them like this. He says, I pray for you, this is Colossians 1, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He's that kind of God. He's a holy and gracious God who's actually pleased with the holiness, with the holy works that his own grace works into our lives. And that's true right now in this life. The Lord smiles upon the good that we do in his name. And then one more. It's also true in the sense that at the end of the age, so now we're looking forward, the end of the age, when everything and everyone and every thought, word, and deed are sized up in the eyes of God, on that day he will in some way reward the particular service that each 
of his children rendered in this life. We don't know exactly how that's going to work, but he will. So you see, this, this one truth, it's multifaceted. The truth, the, we look to the Lord to be our reward. It's true in all of these ways. Just knowing him, and in this life, knowing the pleasure that he takes in our good, and at the end of the age, anticipating the honors that he will bestow for the way his servants honored him. We look to the Lord to be our reward. And brothers and sisters, that, among other things, is what enables us to handle it well when, as the saying goes, no good deed goes unpunished. That's what enables us to bear up and keep going and keep rejoicing when it feels like we've been dishonored or at least overlooked when we've done some kind of good. And we've all been there. And as I was saying when we got started this morning, it may not be a situation in which somebody positively dishonors you or overlooks you. It, it could just be a situation in which you've sought to honor the Lord and you thought that it might result in some relief, some refuge, some breakthrough, and then it didn't turn out that way. So like I said, maybe it's, maybe it's physical illness. And you honor the Lord by obeying doctor's orders, and I mean you obey them scrupulously, carefully, Exercise and nutrition and medication and all of it. And you thought that it would make a real difference, but then you go in for your next appointment and it turns out that the only real difference it seems to have made is by making things worse. And then it's harder. How do you keep going then? Or like I said, maybe it's a broken heart. And you honor the Lord by trying to turn the page and And you thought you were getting somewhere, but then the next day somebody says something or does something, and then you find that your heart is is left in more pieces than it was in yesterday. Or maybe it is uncertainty about the future. And you honor the Lord by trying to take some positive steps forward, only to find the next day that you're pushed three steps back and the future looks even cloudier than it was before. Or you know what? Maybe it is some other person who does seem to have it in for you. And, and you, you try, you try your best, and no matter how hard you try, they just seem to dig in their heels and dig in their nails. These things happen. And what enables us to bear up and keep going and keep rejoicing is the knowledge that God is our reward and our rewarder. And Christian, you know him. And he smiles upon your good works. And that final day, that just and holy and blessed final day is coming. God is our reward and our rewarder. And just like David, that may be a truth that we're going to have to take with us on the run. Because somebody's barking at our heels. Chasing after us, 
hunting us down around the mountain. This is faith in God. And sometimes it feels just like that. This past Mother's Day, our family made a trip over to Arlington National Cemetery. Both of Christie's parents are laid to rest there. So it was an opportunity for us to remember gratefully both mother and father on Mother's Day. One of the things that I remember about Christie's dad is that they had this, this great and, for me, potent personalized license plate. And what it said on the license plate was Hebrews 11.6. Although, so that it would fit on the license plate, it wasn't Hebrews 11.6, it was Heb XI 6. Hebrews Roman numeral 11 XI, Arabic numeral 6. In fact, I remember when he first got it, I didn't quite read it rightly, and I thought, oh, Hebrews 10.16. Okay, so I flipped in the Bible to Hebrews 10.16, and it's citing Jeremiah about the old, co- and the, old the new covenant. And I thought, okay, Hal, Hebrews 10.16. You want to put that on your license plate? Go for it. That's great. And then I looked it closely, and I thought, oh, no, it's Hebrews 11.6. Okay, now I get it. Here's Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's a great verse. So is Hebrews 10.16. But Hebrews 11.6. It's a great verse to take with you on your car, in your heart and mind. Listen to it again. Without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that verse talks about what's impossible. Put positively, we can say it must be that it is possible to please him. And that faith like that is the key. Faith trusting that God is and that he rewards those who seek him. So let's learn from David today. Let's learn from David's own experience. Ultimately, we look to the Lord to be our reward and those who do so shall never be put to shame, including King David and Commander Olson and all the rest of us too. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess our faith here in prayer. We say we believe that you exist and that you reward those who seek you. We say that you are our great reward our lot and our portion and our inheritance. And so we are the most blessed of all peoples to be able to say that we know you and are known by you. 
And then, as if that weren't enough, to think that you actually take pleasure in the good works that we do in this life, whether those around us take pleasure in them or not, whether those around us honor and recognize our good or not. And then, as if that weren't enough, we look forward to the end of the age when you will honor the good that we've done in your name in this life. Father in heaven, we say that you are our reward and our rewarder. We thank you that you've granted us this faith, that you exist and that you exist as such a God. And we pray this day, this Sabbath day, that you would strengthen that faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.